Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Another episode of Still Unbelievable. This time, being the day that it is, the 4th of November, although it will be several weeks later by the time you listen to this, my F5 key on my keyboard is worn so clean, I really needed something to do. So I've got in touch with Andrew and we've just wheeled in the first passerby that we could find on the street. So without any further ado, Andrew and Matthew would like to welcome the man with the coolest haircut of the three of us. It is... John Steingard. Welcome <laughs> to the show, John. It's a genuine Thanks. pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, fellas. And a cooler accent as well. I mean, how much better can this get? <laughs> well, see, I'm, I'm going to be spending this entire conversation enjoying your accent. So uh, if the feeling's even a little bit mutual, that's that's nice. Uh, awesome. I awesome. feel so left out. <laughs> and, and hey, I like so the southern accent be. too, man. <laughs> So, so Matthew gave himself away the F5 key worn clean. He's a Windows user, folks. I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I had to command and, R on the Mac. I had to sit and think about my childhood, and I'm like, is that the refresh key, or is that, or is that the? Do you still have a print screen key? Uh, yes, yes. Still. Wait, do you? Oh, gonna... Wait, do do PCs still have a print screen key? Is that for real? They really yes. do. We do oh my gosh, guys. And we've, we've also got a right to click as well. I, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm a Mac user. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, don't blame me for Matthew's failings. Oh, sure. I, now, Andrew, if you told me he was going to be a Mac user, I might have changed my mind about this. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I didn't know. I, I didn't know. Um, but it's, uh, it is, it is the one conversion that I hope never to hear out of John, that he left the Mac and went to the PC. <laughs> yeah, that's unlikely. It's it's pretty unlikely. I, I consider it every now and again because I do video production and you can build out a really incredible spec'd out PC for much cheaper yeah. than you can yeah. on a Mac. Every time I get on a PC, I'm just instantly angry. And so <laughs> I just figure for my mental health, I'll spend a little bit more and spec out a Mac, you know? Matthew, we did not rehearse this. We did not. You did not rehearse that, and I, I don't know how to respond to that uh, at all. I am just completely outclassed by that statement. I really am. Matthew and, and I, I are both IT geeks. Child, oh, right on, right on, right on. <laughs> you just yeah. you just landed right in the middle of an ongoing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not going to do well in this one, so I'm just going to shut up and pretend I'm normal. Well, we can stop talking about computers. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Andrew has offered that to me multiple times, and it's not happened yet. So, <laughs> well, you know, so anyway, uh, winding it back on track. So, John, for the few listeners who have not heard of you or heard you on any other podcast, because you've been on quite a few podcasts over the 12, last 12 months, tell us a little bit of background, who you are, how you arrived at the situation that you're in and why we've asked you to come onto our podcast. Sure. Yeah. I'm Canadian originally and I grew up in a Christian home 
and my dad's a pastor. And around 2004, I joined a band called Hawk Nelson, which is a group of Christian guys like myself. And we started traveling around Canada and the US playing shows. And that was my career for 16 plus years. And pretty much, you know, almost my entire adult life has been spent in this Christian band playing shows primarily for Christians and singing songs primarily about God. And that has been my life. And then over the last couple of years, just internally in my own personal life, I began to sort of question some of the aspects of the faith that I had and the culture I was a part of within Christianity and began to wonder if all of this stuff that I have always believed was really true or whether I had just been a part of whatever I had grown up in and just accepted it. And so the more I sort of dove into it, the more I found that I really was struggling to believe what I had always been taught in Christianity. And that culminated in uh, earlier this year, finally, me feeling like I needed to be honest publicly about my feelings on the issue. And so I wrote a post in May of this year, 2020, a post basically saying, I've reached this point where I feel that I no longer believe in God, and here's why. And that sort of kicked off a, a pretty crazy couple of months because I didn't realize that it would be... I guess, a, a substantial thing for a, a, the lead singer of a Christian band like the one I was in to come out and say that. And it was picked up all over the national news media in the U.S. I think potentially a, a few outlets ab abroad as well, uh, like I think potentially in the U.K. also. But it, it caused this stir, I guess. And one of the things that was really interesting about that to me was that it put me in contact with so many people that were wrestling with some of the same things that I was wrestling with and, and maybe doubting some of the same things that I was doubting. And so the last six months has basically been a journey of having conversations with a lot of those people and, and then also continuing to have conversations with people in Christianity and walking that out, hopefully with kindness and, and a desire to find what is really true. And that's kind of what's led me to where I'm at today. Thank you. Has it really only been since May this year? I could have yeah. sworn it was last year you made that post. <laughs> well, I, I mean, a lot has happened since then, both for me personally and in the world. So, yeah, for me, a, a lot of the processing that I did has been the last couple of years because I really spent a lot of time dealing with sort of my questions and my doubts before I said anything publicly. But, yeah, as far as the public aspect of, of this journey, yeah, it's it's been, you know, since May. So not that long. No, and I kind of, rem I don't know when it actually hit in the UK. I first heard about it on Justin Briley's uh, podcast, Unbelievable. That's when he mentioned it. And I think it makes more sense here in the UK that I would hear something like that from a Christian source. Because um, religion here in the UK isn't quite as overt as it is, as it is over in the States. Right. So, and and in Canada, where I'm from, it's it's very similar. You know, someone coming out and saying that, they don't believe in God. I, I, in Canada, I just don't, I don't know if, if that's news. <laughs> so. No, it wouldn't even make a ripple in the secular yeah. press here. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, the Christian press will go crazy over it. And people like Andrew and myself who are interested in these kind of conversations will pick up on it. But the only way we'll find out about it, certainly for me, would be by keeping in touch with Christian sources uh, for things like that. Right. So, so that was how I heard of it. And I must confess... I hadn't heard of Hawk Nelson, but then you said 2004 okay. was was when you started. Yeah. And I'm trying to think my exit from Christianity was 
around about 12, 13 years ago now. So it's not a long time after that. But I have tried out some of your music and I definitely would have been a fan. Oh, uh, thank you. you know, music, music of of a Christian uh, from Christian Bent really isn't isn't my thing anymore. I've listened to much of it over the years and I really need to take a break from it. But in my Christian days, I was really, really big into Petra. I oh, think yeah. I've probably, got, I've probably got all their albums still somewhere. So that's where, where I was. And there was a band in the UK called the Worldwide Message Tribe. No idea if you've heard of them. I haven't, I've got, no. I've got all of their stuff. And then obviously lots of other ones. But Petra was the big thing for me. In probably fact, my, one of my biggest uh, musical influences was British. And it was a band called Delirious. Yes, I'm familiar with Delirious, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really get on with Delirious. Their, their music was a bit too soft for me. <laughs> you know, I preferred I preferred the more more rocky tones of Petra and the Worldwide Message Tribe, who I mentioned to you, a bit more dancey. So that was really more my area. Delirious, just I think there was only one song that they did which I, I really engaged with, but most of their stuff, I, it was just it was too soft pop for me. Yeah, sure, I get that. Yeah, I was a big um, acapella vocal band AVB fan. Oh and yeah, Betty. Oh, do you know AVB? No. Okay. No, but I, was, I just that was going to be really no. I, I, when I when I said, "Oh yeah," I, I was. I guess I was associating that musical style with where you're from, and and that's exactly right. And it it, it felt congruent to me. It is. Uh, yeah. So Church of Christ. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, you've you've already got the picture. I can tell mm -hmm. by the tone of voice. Yeah. Oh yeah. And but to to give the band its due, they were really really good rock acapella music and if uh, the people if you know if you're listening you think i don't think that's possible look up avp um did they did a good job yeah i've got awesome. to know I've, I've got to know man you, you said that your dad was in the ministry mm -hmm. and still um and my dad is, is a southern baptist he has been a preacher he still does weddings and funerals and that kind of thing on occasion he's a guy that has three volumes of adam clark Right. And they're all in tatters and, and he's looking for a place to have them rebound. He's that he's that kind of Southern Baptist. And he can't come to a place where he can acknowledge that he has a son that is atheist. We can't talk about it. We mm -hmm. might be able to one day. Right. Because these things sneak up on you where you, you know, it takes a while to get used to an idea or whatever. But where are you and your dad? Have you managed to carry on a good relationship or is he having trouble acknowledging uh, well, I might have overspoken for you. Do you do you no, call no. yourself an atheist, or or are you just a skeptic? Where uh, are you an agnostic? I don't want to yeah, overspeak so, for that part of the story. It's funny because those terms, I mean, those terms somewhat sometimes mean different things to different people. So yeah, I don't right. actively like claim any any of those labels really, but sure. the technical definitions of them certainly apply to me. Like I've heard people say that, you know, atheism is a, a label that denotes belief or lack of belief and agnosticism is a, is is talking about knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I technically I suppose I would be an agnostic atheist because I don't know that whether God is real or not, and I don't have a belief in him necessarily. Uh, so, so technically I'd be an agnostic atheist, but from my view, I'm sort of in this place where I, I have a desire for there to be a bigger story in reality than just myself, and I have a, a desire for there to be something beyond the material, but I don't 
at the moment have any reason to believe that there is anything like that. And it's a big, it's just a big question mark for me. So I don't have any specific beliefs beyond the natural materialistic world, uh, but I'm open to it. I think you've hinted there, there John, on, on something that's uh, probably quite important in these kinds of conversations. And, um, and I think a lot of people miss the nuance. The, the point at which somebody says, I can no longer identify as Christian, that is just a mile marker on the road of their life. It's yeah. not an absolutist position that says this is the end of something which can never be returned to. And it's also not necessarily this is the start of something which is now permanent because it, yeah. it's um, and if I can give an example for from from my own life. And I'm, I'm my guess here is that, that yours is a little similar. The journey up until when I said, OK, here I am, I'm no longer Christian. What am I? That was actually a lot of thinking and a lot of challenging and a lot of wrestling with ideas and beliefs and a lot of changing in the ideas I accepted and the ideas of beliefs. It, it wasn't that the point at which I said I can no longer identify as Christian, that wasn't when all of those beliefs changed. That was just the realization that all the beliefs that had changed in the previous three years now meant something. Does, yeah. does that mean the same for you? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I remain open. The way that I sort of think about it is that if something you know, if some reality or some truth is sort of appears in front of me in a way that's undeniable, I don't have no plan on fighting that. So I continue to be really curious about spirituality in general. And uh, I, I think I, I hesitate to actively claim a specific label because I feel like it, like you just said, it, it almost indicates that your search is over. And I don't feel that is the case for me. Technically, agnostic atheist is probably accurate. And yeah, in regards to your question about my dad, it's been a challenge, but we've had a lot of conversations both before I went public and after. And, you know, we still have a, a good relationship. We love each other. We're not arguing. The hardest part of this journey for me has been knowing that my parents worry about me going to hell. Yeah. And I have kids myself. So if I believed that about my own son, I mean, that would weigh on me all day, every day. Yeah. It'd be soul wrenching, wouldn't it? Yeah. And so the, the thought that I'm doing that to my parents, which to a degree, I'm not sure that I fully am because I, I, I kind of get the sense that they are taking the approach that like, well, you know, God's in control and, you know, God's mm -hmm. going to reveal himself to John at some point. And, <laughs> and when they say that to me, I go, hey, if he's there, I want that. Like, I mean, if God is real, I don't want to avoid him. <laughs> like, right. I just don't think that he is. And so I think it's a complicated issue. But I think on some level, my parents are trusting that God will reveal himself to me. And that's their home base, you know, of, of how they sort of get up in the morning and live their lives and, and not live in fear of, you know, whatever might happen to me. I'm glad that you guys are able to do that, that, yeah. that they can find a place if they're wrong, they're comfortable. If they're right, they're comfortable and you're in the same place and you guys can carry on. I think that's hugely important, no mm -hmm. matter what the end of the story is, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Finding some place to support each other in the meantime, that's a big deal for everybody involved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like you to wear a counselor's hat for a moment then, John, because when for, for those who've heard some of my stories, specifically the version of my story that's on the podcast, The Graceful Atheist, and I tell my story the the one thing the mistake that i made 
to certainly with those that I love is I didn't communicate with them. So when I said I didn't really do a formal coming out, but when I told the people that I love the most that I could no longer identify as Christian, it was actually the deal had been done for me by then. I'd uh, already done yeah. the journey and I'd already comfortably accepted the label of atheist. And so when I told these pe the people that closest to me and we had these conversations, I said, well, I've done all my thinking. I've made my decision. I'm now atheist. And that comes as quite a, quite a shock to, to those that you care about and those that you love when it happens like that, because you've robbed them of the conversation. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody listening to this who's in that moment of problem? They, they clearly need to talk to somebody, but they don't know somebody. They don't know. I'll rewind that because I need to add some clarity there. Sure. The reason why I didn't fess up earlier was because I was afraid of hurting people I cared about more than anything else. That was really what it was. So it was cowardice. I, I accept that it was a, a cowardly act it, because I just didn't know how to have that conversation. And I knew the necessity of that conversation meant hurting people I cared about. So what would you say to somebody in that position who's struggling with that? They, they fear that the conclusion they're coming to is they're going to no longer be able to identify as Christian. Let's forget about what happens after that. What's your advice to them about reaching out to their loved ones about having that conversation? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is you don't want your loved ones to find out on social media or yeah. or in some sort of mass text or email or something like that. Like th those conversations are best had in person if possible. They're best had in the context of like a loving relationship and posture is just as important as position. So how you how you approach these people that you care about uh, is important. And you can say like, hey, this is where I'm at. These are things that I'm feeling. My journey is not uh, final here, but I've been thinking about it for some time and, and I, I do feel quite strongly about this. I love you. I care about you. I want you in my life. I don't feel like this separates us at all. I don't feel like it has to, but I recognize that this might be very, very difficult for you to accept. And, and you also might have questions and, you know, you might be frustrated with me, but I welcome your questions. I want to be open and I'll answer any question you have as best as I can. And if you sort of walk into the conversation with that kind of posture and not approach it as if it's going to be an argument, approach it as if like, hey, my goal in this conversation is to be honest with you and actually to improve our relationship by being transparent rather than to make it worse by, you know, having an argument. Thank you, John. That was really good advice. And I genuinely wish I'd heard that 10 years ago when it was me. <laughs> well, it's hard. I, I really do. It is hard. And yeah. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that these are, are difficult, intense experiences for us as individuals. And they're going to be difficult, intense conversations sometimes as well. Yeah, for sure. We know where you are now. And Matthew and I are probably in pretty similar positions to you. I describe myself as a, as a weak atheist. You say agnostic atheist. They're pretty similar. Right. Sure. I've, I've examined a number of uh, God hypotheses. None of them are convincing. I am not saying that there is no God. I am saying that I haven't discovered a God concept that I think compels me toward belief. So, but I, it, it seems like when I get into these conversations, having been a former Christian like you, one of the things that comes out 
right away is what caused you not to believe? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think the question's okay, but it doesn't actually fulfill what the Christian wants to know because the journey out of Christianity is as complex as the journey while you're in, right? Oh, but, certainly, yeah. But I wonder if you would like, if you can describe how it is that someone who is clearly in a place to be a hard-fighting soldier for Jesus, right? The lead singer for a band that is going around and proclaiming gospel, singing about the Savior of humanity, right? Yeah. And, uh, and in some way, during that walk, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how you'd describe it, but from the outside, it seems like doubt crept in at some point, and you find yourself where you are today. And I, I wonder how that started, if you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know to a degree, but not completely. You've obviously had enough of these conversations that you know sometimes it's hard to pinpoint. Yeah. Um, but uh, for me, in my initial post in May, I described l- losing my faith as sort of an unraveling of a sweater because I found these threads that were problematic a while ago, and I started just sort of pulling on them and seeing like, well, what happens when I investigate this? And it kept on going and going and going. And eventually I sort of came to this point where I was like, oh, wow, I actually don't, I don't think I believe at all. And to be specific, like a few issues, it was just like every once in a while, every couple of years, something would come up that I would just notice and I would go, oh, that's, that's interesting. So like an example is, um, I grew up uh, in a very charismatic church, mm-hmm. and uh, it was actually a group of churches that was actually uh, dismissed from the vineyard, and the vineyard was a very charismatic movement, mm-hmm. and it was dismissed for a bunch of like wild and crazy things that were sort of going on at the time. I ended up at, when I, I moved out when I was 17 and, and on my own, and I started going to a Baptist church, and the Baptist church, you know, even though we're we're still talking about the Christian God, we're still talking about Jesus, you know, we're reading the same Bible, but their approach to their faith was just completely different. And one of the things that they didn't believe in was speaking in tongues. And I was like, oh, so I just assumed all Christians believed in speaking in tongues, and I come to find out that's not the case. And and then, like, another issue was they um, their male leaders were called pastor— but if they had a female leader of any department in the church, they would use the word director. What? And I was like, and I was like, well, what's that about? And then they pointed me to scriptures that talked about women not being in leadership. And I was like, oh, I've never seen these before. And sure enough, here they are. And so that was a sort of a red flag. I was like, it seems weird that women can't be pastors. That seems sort of backwards and not, you know, how's that loving? And then, you know, years later when I was in the U.S. and and the U.S. passed, the Supreme Court passed the law legalizing same-sex marriage, I remember having this gut feeling that I was like, well, that that seems like progress. But I knew I couldn't say that publicly because it would probably cost me my career. Um, Right, because there's that whole Romans chapter one thing that that the vast majority of conservatives would still point to. Romans 127, I think it is. Yeah. yeah, when, you know, it, Paul uses a very specific word that actually isn't, it's a Greek word, uh, I can't, aposta something or other, I can't remember what it, I'm not, I don't know my Greek. It's not even about scripture entirely, it's more about culture. It's like the culture of Christianity in North America, particularly, it doesn't tend to be af- affirming of homosexuality. So 
I knew if I came out and said, hey, this is a good thing that same-sex couples can get married, I know I knew that that would probably sink our career. And that fear was confirmed because uh, another band named Jars of Clay had this singer named Dan Hazeltine, who I, I had met a few times. And when that Supreme Court decision was passed down, he was in Australia. He got on a plane to go back to the U.S. And right before they took off, he tweeted support for the same-sex marriage decision. And by the time he landed, their career was basically over. <laughs> and so, wow. And so I saw that whole thing play out. And I was like, well, sure enough, I was right that I can't say this. And then, you know, as time went on, I started to see more and more things where, like, my gut feeling was taking me in one direction. And Christian culture, you know, the Christian culture that I was embedded in was saying something different. And so I was sort of going like, okay, like— it feels like I want to go in this direction, and I always feel like I'm erring on the side of wanting to be loving and supportive and, and affirming of people. And I'm actually feeling like my Christianity is keeping me from doing that as much as I want to, and that's strange. So I, I started studying Scripture a lot more as I started having these questions come up in my mind. And when I did that, uh, that's when things really started to come apart, because I started to find all these things I did not know were in the Bible. They were incredibly problematic. And while Christian apologists have answers for almost everything, the sheer number of the issues that I found in the Bible, things that bothered me or things that seemed inconsistent, it put me in a place where I was like, well, I, I don't think the Bible's inerrant. I, I can't believe that anymore. There's just too many problems. And then the question entered my mind, like, well, if the Bible's not the perfect word of God, then what is it? And, oh, if it's written by humans, then it's imperfect and it's flawed. And and maybe it makes sense that, you know, they're speaking out against homosexuality and women in leadership. And, and that's just like a cultural thing from thousands of years ago. And but then it occurred to me, you know, like and if I had just stopped there, I would have been a, I would have become a progressive Christian, which is still tempting to me sometimes. Um, right. Just be a Presbyterian and call it all back. Right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and but once I had gone that far, I, I just felt like, OK, what if God is not real? If the scriptures are really human and really flawed, then like, what do I have to go on? That was sort of on an intellectual level. And then I had an experience where I went and I did a, a documentary film in Uganda. This is about two years ago. Mm. And I saw suffering on a scale that I have never, ever seen before. And while I was there, I was just struck with the thought that like, what I'm seeing in front of me is not congruent with the idea of uh, a, an all-powerful and all-loving God. And I was just like, if God is real and he's loving and he's powerful, and if he intervenes in our lives the way that the Bible seems to indicate that he does, then why am I seeing what I'm seeing right now? I grew up with people saying like stuff like, oh, you know, God is so good. He answered my prayer, even my tiny little prayer for a parking spot at church. You know, God just loves me so much. He's answering that prayer. And then I go to Uganda and I see people also praying to God, but for their very survival. And I'm seeing in this community I was in that 50 percent of the children don't make it to the age of five. I'm seeing suffering on a scale that I'd never experienced. And I just went, what explains this? And the best explanation for me was that God wasn't there at all. And that was not a welcome realization. 
I think sometimes people think when someone leaves Christianity or leaves their faith that it's because they want to do a bunch of sinning or something. <laughs> and we like, get told that like, all the time. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, oh, you just... <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm not joking. Once a day, someone on social media says, well, I know that you just left because you're gay. And I'm like, <laughs> first off, all of my friends that are gay are are awesome. And so, like, thank you for the compliment. Yep. And and, <laughs> awesome. and secondly, like, I know you're saying that like like it's a bad thing. But like, do you understand that that's not a, an insult to me? And then thirdly, I'm I'm a straight white 37 year old male who's married with two kids like. I'm as vanilla as it gets, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, and, and, you know, so for me, it wasn't like I didn't leave Christianity because I have some secret sin or like I'm, I'm struggling to justify some horrible thing that's in my life or whatever. It's just that I, I saw suffering that I, that was best explained by the lack of God. And that yeah. was sort of congruent with everything that I had been studying in scripture and, you know, sensing and culture. And, and, and then, you know, it sort of all culminated in feeling like that all sort of dovetailed together, all of those things. And I was like, wow, I actually don't think this is, I don't think this is real. And that's kind of how it played out for me. It's interesting. I identify with a lot of what you just said. Uh, the problem of sin and suffering is a big one to me today mm -hmm. because the world is filled with suffering. And if we leave the shores of the contiguous 48 states or whatever, uh, 49 if you include Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, that is that is not intended to diminish Canada, a country no, that I love. No, no, right way. now Canada's feeling pretty good, actually. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, they they don't do, they don't have the same problem on November third that the United States has. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, I, I identify with the with the problem of sin and suffering, but what started my journey out was that I felt like the Bible went out of its way to try to describe reality and specifically to try to make certain. Uh, kinds of uh, physical claims about the universe, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like the Genesis story and that sort of thing, but it doesn't stop there, right? And so science was the thing that I thought was pitted against the pages of the Bible and somehow empirical investigation, I think, wins out over the sort of tools that you see that people are asked to use in the Bible. And uh, in fact, empirical investigation has been our best means of discovering how the world works and uh the bible just gets some of that stuff wrong and oh absolutely <laughs> and and i had a similar aspect to my journey too when i studied evolution mm. uh because i was just like oh my gosh like we weren't the only species of hominid um right. there were there were other hominids and that's pretty indisputable and right and so like were they also made in the image of god and if we evolved from a common, you know, if, if us and chimpanzees evolved from a common ancestor, right. uh, at what point did we gain the image of God? If you're a, an old earth creationist who, believe, who believes that God used evolution to make human beings and that Genesis is metaphorical, mm -hmm. but you still believe, then, then I would go like, well, at what point did we become made in the image of God? When did that happen? Right. Uh, right. And so it's just there. I'm with you. There, there are certain problems that are just sort of difficult to get around. And, you know, the, the Bible was clearly written from the perspective of people that believed in a three tiered universe. So mm -hmm. like 
there's earth in the middle and the have have when they say the heavens and they're talking about the sky they actually also literally mean the he heaven like they thought that right. they could see it uh, and they thought hell was below them and i think about that sometimes and i'm like can you imagine what that would have been like to look up at a starry night sky with no light pollution of any kind and believe that you are looking at heaven like what uh that would have been incredible um to think to think that that is a really interesting thought experiment. Uh, I don't know that I've thought about it quite that way, but you're right. Um, we were sort of the snow globe in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're just the ground in the snow globe and somewhere above the snow globe is heaven and you've got hell underneath somewhere and the whole casting down of angels, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I don't honestly know. Looking back today, I, re I remember being a Christian. And in fact, I was a young earth creationist. As yeah, was well, Matthew. I, I, so was I. Yeah. Oh, OK. OK. So so uh, we were all yaks, uh, you know, well, welcome to the converted yak society. Yeah. And uh, and I look back at it now. And. I remember my professional life and thinking clearly about the sorts of problems that I would solve professionally, uh, you know, but I, I think about religion. And today, I can't honestly identify what it was that had me think the way I did other than self-deception. Mm. And, and that's probably too strong. But at any rate, the, the tools that I used to think about young earth creationism, to think about biblical inerrancy, uh, to think about God flooding the world and killing uh, all but eight souls, that kind of thing, that, those kinds of thoughts, I know I had them, I know I defended them, I know I taught them, uh, and, and yet I look back and that part of my life from where I am now seems very foreign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. There's so many things that I took as a given that I look back at now and I go, wow, I had no rational reason to believe that, mm -hmm. except the fact that it's just what I was raised with. And for me, so much of it was just culture. So I was, you know, raised in a Christian home as a pastor's kid. And so my whole world was the church that we were in and, and the social groups within that church. And then at the age of 20, I joined a Christian band and started touring. And, and so I was in the bubble of Christian music. And almost my entire life up until recently, I was firmly entrenched and, you know, ensconced in Christianity. And if everyone, politics is this way too. It's like if you surround yourself with people only, you know, or almost entirely people that believe a certain thing, you're going to tend to believe that unless it's seriously directly challenged and you're willing to reconsider, which is I mean, changing your mind on something is incredibly painful and people don't want to do it. So typically they just don't, you know. So for me, like my journey out of Christianity was, I mean, I went kicking and screaming, man. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and it was bit by bit. Like I was like, okay, well, maybe I just have problems with the Bible, but I believe in God, you know? And then, and then, you know, it's like, Maybe I don't believe in the atonement. Maybe I believe in the doctrine of Christ as victor. Like, because I had sort of an issue with like, why did Jesus need to die for God to forgive us? And if it was to pay the price for our sins, then who is he paying the price to? So God is, is allowing his son to die, which is also him, so that he can pay the price to himself himself right. uh well and then when i was studying i realized that for the first thousand years of christianity a very common view is that he was paying the price to satan um and it was actually it was it's i could be wrong on this but my understanding is that that was a common view 
And then it was actually St. Anselm of Canterbury around 1000 CE that basically firmed up the doctrine of atonement and popularized it. And that it was the idea that the debt to be paid was actually to God himself, because it sort of implied that that Satan had one over on God if, if God had to pay him off, right? And so mm-hmm. St. Anselm didn't like that. And, and so it's like, you know, there's all these weird logical problems within Christianity that you just accept, you know, like... Like the Trinity, like the only religion in the world that believes in something that's could be described as monotheism, but could also be described as polytheism. Mm-hmm. And you and and it's also interesting that, you know, Judaism is is strictly monotheistic, but Christianity is actually so influenced by Greek culture, and Greek culture was polytheistic. So is it any surprise that we have something that's sort of trying to mash those two things together? Yeah. To me, it sort of makes sense. It does. There, there's so many contradictions. Um, well, I guess if you're a Christian listening, you probably have rescued all of these problems already, right? And you still don't, you still don't see the, still don't see the trouble that we're that we're talking about. But I agree. There's a lot here to untangle, and and you don't know. Uh, when you start your journey out, which ones are going to be the real bugaboos, right? Uh, yeah. For me, it started at Genesis 1. And mm. uh, the Church of Christ had this, um, and, and they still have, this thing that they say to people from the pulpit. Uh, I should actually thank them for this uh, because it, it was a, a key part of my way out. But they say regularly from the pulpit, if you find something in the Bible that's untrustworthy, if there's one thing that you can't trust, you don't know that there's anything in there you can trust. Yeah, I agree with that. That's where I, that's what got me where I'm at. You know, I had this uh, I had this conversation at one point with my father-in-law, who's a wonderful man. He's a believer. Uh, we were talking about the various translations and I was of the Bible, and and we were talking about Second Timothy, the passage that's talking about women, mm-hmm. uh, and how they shouldn't speak in church. And he indicated that he felt like that the King James Version had emphasized things like that and that it was biased as a result. And I said, okay, well, so you think the King James Version is biased. I just also think the original is biased. And he said, well, if you believe that, then what do you have left? And I said, exactly. Nice. And I wasn't trying to land a point with him. It was a genuine conversation. And that was a moment where I realized that he was actually entirely right. That once you give up the idea that the original writings of, you know, say the Gospels, once you give up the idea that that's not perfect and that it's biased and it has errors and that it might have things in it that aren't true, once you give that up, it's like you have no objective grounding for your faith anymore. And and that's that's why evangelical Christians are so gung-ho about inerrancy. It's because once you give that up, it's like everything's relative, and you can claim that God is whatever you want him to be, which is their greatest fear. Like, they actually—they would actually rather contend with people who say that there's no God than contend with people who say that God is real, but they disagree on his nature, you know? Like, that's a scarier contention for them, which is why they're so freaked out about the progressive Christian movement now. Yeah. And on that translation issue, it, it has always seemed to me, um, I took a semester of Greek back in college. I remember, oh, did you? Yeah, well, I, and I don't remember any of it. You know, if I, if I tell people I know a little Greek, it's the guy that makes pizza 
you know, at the, at the, <laughs> eater, at the eater here in town, right? So, <laughs> you know, I, I really don't, you know, it's, it's one of those courses that I struggled through, but it seems to me that Greek ought not be necessary. If I can't trust the English Bible or the German Bible or the French Bible or whatever Bible is my native tongue, there are a great many of us who don't have the mental equipment to learn Greek through no fault of our own, because that idea of, of learning languages and that sort of thing, for most of us, it closes down around, you know, five or six or seven, right? Our language patterns yeah. are established and learning a foreign language is not only hard, it simply might not be something we can do. And so an all-powerful God, a, a maker and and winder of the universe, the guy that can tinker with the gears at any moment, this dude ought not need us all to learn Greek. Yeah, and you're touching on something really important there. I didn't realize how central this idea was to my apostasy, as it were. For a long time, I really thought that the problem of evil was my sort of biggest issue with belief. And I realized as I was reflecting that actually my biggest issue has something, has a lot to do with what you just said. And it's this concept of divine hiddenness. So it's like, Mm -hmm. Basically, you could state it as, if God is real, where is he? Um, and why does the world look so very much like what you'd expect to see if God wasn't real? And how do you tell the difference? Yeah. How do you tell the, yeah, how do you tell the difference between a God who's hidden and a God who doesn't exist? And for me, I was raised, the different people have different expressions of Christianity for sure, but I was raised in a tradition that was very much focused on personal relationships. So it was like, hey, how's your walk with Jesus? The most important thing that you need to do is have a relationship with Jesus. And I always, even when I was a believer, I always like struggled with that. I was like, well, I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, you know, but I, I don't know that I feel like I have a personal relationship with Jesus the way that I have with like my friends or my parents or, you know, whatever. And when I had my son, I sort of had this epiphany that like, oh man, like I want to be present in his life. I want to be an active force for good in my son's life. It occurred to me that if my son grew up to be an adult and if he came to question my very existence, then I've done something wrong as a parent. We might have disagreements uh, as he gets older, but, but he's going to know I exist because I'm <laughs> present in his life in a way that's just like, like he would never even think to question. And, right. and so I, I go like, you know, if God's a loving father, then, then how is it that I'm even, I'm, I'm even able to ask if he's real? Like, shouldn't that be so undeniable that that thought would never even occur to me? And then, to, you know, if I present that to a Christian, most Christians will say like, well, you're sort of choosing then how, you know, you're, you're dictating to God how you want him to show up in your life. And I'm saying, no, I'm not dictating anything. I'm just saying if God wants me to believe that he's there, the least that he could do is show up. <laughs> yeah. If I never was in my son's life and somebody was like, oh, no, no, you have a dad and he loves you so much. His first question would be like, OK, well, why why wasn't he around? Yeah. And. And that's kind of how I feel about God. I'm just like, if God is there and he's loving, like I want a relationship with him. I'm just 37 and I've never seen him or heard him. And that did, seems strange to me. Did you pray a prayer saying, God, reveal yourself to me. I need you. I've prayed that prayer so many times mm. and like meant it. Like, that's the thing is that a lot of Christians will be like, oh, well, you never really believed. <laughs> and, I, and, and I'll be like, well, I, I thought I did. How much belief is belief? Mm. And, and like, when I prayed the sinner's prayer for the first time, I was like five years old. 
And like, I believed it with my, my whole heart. And I prayed a similar prayer many times as an adult. And I meant it. I, you know, I had times in my life where I was not in a good place and I was really desperate for help. And I prayed to God and asked him to show up. And sometimes my life would get better, but not in a way that, that was like definitely God. It was always a coincidence. It was always like, well, that could be God. If I decided to attribute these good things in my life to God, then I could do that. But it's not definitive, you know. The good things in my life might have something to do with the fact that I work hard and that I, I hopefully am kind to people. And like over years, that stuff adds up. And if God was real, I'd be perfectly willing to admit that he's blessed my life. But what about the people that I met in Uganda? You know, why is God blessing me and not them? Like, certainly it can't be because I'm so awesome. Like, that can't be. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't that doesn't sound right. Well, you are awesome. But I'm sure there are plenty of awesome people in Uganda, right? Yeah, I just I just I know so many people. And and I'm sure you've experienced this, too. Like, I've met so many people who, to me, seem so much more deserving of good things than I do. And, And yet they struggle with things that are just seems so unfair yeah and i know the christian response is like well whoever said it would be fair and i'm just like well i don't know mm. kind of everybody <laughs> like right but don't t- don't sell me the the all-loving creator of the universe and then try to sell me unfair well that i just yeah when you start bringing up issues like this yeah when you start bringing up stuff like this people will go to the god works in mysterious ways thing Mm. Right. And then to which I'll say, like, well, what's the difference between a God who works so mysteriously that you can't possibly understand and a God that isn't there? What's the difference? Yeah, that's right. You've mentioned uh, Uganda several times. There's a few questions I want to ask sure. on that. But my turn quickly for a brief anecdote, because it will lead into the questions that help set the scene. Our listeners know, certainly those who've listened to more than one episode of our podcast, I had the pleasure of growing up in Zambia. Oh, I I didn't know that. I I come from a missionary family who who grew up in Zambia. So my mother trained in the UK as an occupational therapist. And then when she went out to Zambia, she used those skills in hospitals in Zambia, treating people with all sorts of wounds and uh, deformities. And I had the pleasure of seeing her with her patients and seeing the gentleness and the love Mm. with which she, she treated those patients. And so... She, she died about 12 years ago, so my heart is just filling with pride at the moment talking about it. Oh. And she was so much a product of her parents. You see the way that her parents were with people, and you, it's no surprise that my mother was the kind of person that she was. But that was a human showing genuine and very real compassion to other people. And she did that often to her own cost throughout mm. the entirety of her life. Yes, she was also a Christian, but please don't you dare say it was her belief that made her like that. Mm-hmm. She was like that because that's the person that she absolutely was. And the, when faced with that kind of suffering that, that you were talking about that you, you saw in Uganda, it's very valid to ask the question if people can be like this to their fellow man in places like this, where is God? Mm-hmm. So the question I want to ask you is, did you ask that question of the Christians that you were with who were resident in Uganda, who spent years upon years in Uganda in amongst all this this suffering? Yeah. Yeah. So the organization I went with was a Christian organization. 
and they uh, are doing absolutely incredible work. They they don't have a ton of funding. They're a small organization, and I was over there to help make uh, some video content that would help them, you know, be able to tell their story a bit better. And at the time, I wasn't honest. I wasn't transparent with them about my doubts. I think they maybe picked up on it a little bit through our conversations, but we didn't talk about it openly. I told them about my doubt later uh, as I was sort of becoming more public and, and they sort of indicated like, yeah, we sort of suspected that you were feeling that stuff. The way that they answer it, you know, like they say that the work that they're doing there, like, the, you know, they sort of say, like, look at the good things that God is doing. And I, I sort of look at it and I'm like, well, I think you're doing it. I think it's fantastic work and it needs to be done. And like, I continue to support them financially. I sponsored one of their children for each of my kids. And I believe in what they're doing there. They're actually housing, educating and feeding 250 orphan children in a structure about the size of my house. And wow. and my house is not big, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, so they're doing a lot with a little. They attribute what they're doing to to God working, but I I can't help but notice, and I've seen this my whole life, that very often when quote unquote God provides, it comes in the form of someone providing, like a person, and mm. and that leads me to feel that like if suffering bothers us, then. And we can have, you know, sort of philosophical debates about why it should bother us or why it does bother us. It bothers me. And so one of the things that I've come out of this experience with is a, a way stronger emphasis on wanting to participate in the alleviation of suffering of other human beings. And I actually don't think you have to go to Uganda to do that. I mean, when I got home, I, I started researching poverty statistics in my own, you know, city of San Diego. And I discovered that half a million people in San Diego are considered what's called food insecure, meaning it's not that they don't have enough money to eat, but they're not always sure that they do. And sometimes they have to go without food for one reason or another. And I've literally never in my life gone hungry because I couldn't afford to eat. And to think that there's half a million people in San Diego County that ha that face that choice ever. I mean, that's like shocking to me. So. I've become way more involved in those kinds of causes since actually losing my faith because I no longer have the sort of thought, oh, God will provide. I'm like, nope, I can't I can't trust that anymore. So if suffering bothers me, uh, I need to do something about it. And I can't help but notice that a lot of the people that I've talked to that are atheists and, and that potentially have left Christianity, some of them, sometimes they're some of the most generous and philanthropic people I know. And they've really thought about morality. And secular humanism is, is a great example of people that have come out of religion or have chosen not to believe in a religion, but have wanted to make the world a better place for people that are suffering. And I just love that. Thank you. That was beautiful to hear. That really was. And we know, Andrew and I both know people who have gone out of their way to help others since leaving the faith it's it's not a new thing what you've just said so it's great yeah. to hear it independently from another source what you just said about human value about secular humanism uh, well about humanism in general uh, you know there but i would i guess identify as a secular humanist and it occurs to me that one of the big questions that we haven't asked you that seems part and parcel of your answer there that could probably use a, a little more unwinding is when you, well, 
I don't know if you had to deal with this, but when I walked away from Christianity, I had to answer the question for myself about human value. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. when I was a Christian, I could just say, well, you know, um, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And it's this very pat answer, you know, and you've got this card and your billfold. And whenever someone does something wrong, you can say, turn the other cheek. And that's on one side of the card. And, you know, uh, do unto others is on the other side of the card. And <laughs> you can just yeah, go about yeah. the very way. Right. It's uh, you can just you can just say, well, here's the lodge I belong to. And here's what we believe as a non-Christian. If you're going to take the world seriously uh, as a naturalist and a humanist, you have to answer these questions. And that takes some real um, yes. soul searching. If you, <laughs> you know, if It's you very complicated. Yeah. And yeah. And, and very often, I'm sure you experience this, you know, when you leave faith, a, a, a Christian will ask you, well, then how do you ground your morality? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. And that's the question you're getting at, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. You know, there's the classic debate of uh, is morality objective or subjective? And I'm always fascinated by the fact that Christians are so ardent about morality being objective because mm-hmm. they're like, well, no, there are things that are just right and wrong objectively. And and I accepted that when I was a Christian, but but since, since walking away from Christianity, I, I, I sort of go, okay, is that— is that true? And what's our evidence for that? And generally, when you ask for evidence, a Christian will say, well, you just you just know, like we just know. And then to which an atheist or, or someone who's doubting a skeptic might say, well, like, well, I can't help but notice that like all these different cultures in the world have different moral views. So how can morality be objective? To which the Christian apologist will say, oh, well, morality is objective. They're all just wrong. <laughs> Right. And, right. Right. And, you know, and then they'll usually bring up Nazis at, at some point. Nazis will come up because they'll right. say they'll say, well, you know, if the Nazis had won World War Two, you know, they would have just said that their actions were right. And, you know, if that became consensus, does that make it right? And mm-hmm. it's, a, of course, that argument is a trap because what they want you to do is they want you to choose between agreeing with them or agreeing with the Nazis, which right. is which is. Which is so manipulative. But anyway, um, my my approach to that is, is like, well, actually, we're the you know the U.S. is the only country that ever dropped nuclear weapons on another country, and we did it on two civilian cities. Said it over and, and over. Yep. And and so, like, do you think that that was wrong? Because I think that if we had lost. If the Japanese had had beat us, I think that we would all living be living in a world where we would recognize that that was wrong. So, to me, this whole conversation in, indicates there is a, a massive amount of subjectivity in our moral beliefs. The the only way that I can see that you can ground morality in anything objective is if we all agree on something. So, if we can agree that human well being is the goal. So, first off, like. If you say the word right and wrong or like good or bad, those words don't have any meaning unless you're they're referencing a goal of some kind. So the example I like to use is if you're choosing between a car and a horse, it's like, which which is better? Well, if you're trying to get from point A to point B cheaply, easily, reliably, then a car is better. But if you're trying to go up this winding mountainside, then a horse is better. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's on this little path or whatever, there's situations in which a horse might be a better choice. So 
you have to pick a goal before good or bad or better or worse means anything. So, you know, Christians will say the goal of, you know, morality, that, that the goal for morality is that we do what God commands, to which I'll say like, well, which commands? Because that's not clear. But regardless of that, I would say human well-being is the goal that I have chosen to ground my morality. I believe that every time I make a choice, if it I have the ability as a conscious creature and a moral agent to sort of try and decide what decisions can I make and w- which ones will benefit, you know, which ones will get me closer to more human well-being and further away from suffering for, for as many people as possible. And now yes. I recognize that that choice to, to make human well-being the goal, that's a subjective choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but once, you, once you've made that choice, then you can make objective claims based on that goal. So you can say, you know, like, I think that killing people objectively is wrong given the goal of human well-being, right? Yeah. Um, and so technically it's subjective morality, but it's based on a principle that if everyone can agree that human well-being is the goal— and most people do, that that consensus forms a, a basis on which you can build some objective truths uh, about morality. And that's how I think the world works. And that's how I view it. And that's how I you know, rationalize it. And plenty of people will make arguments with me on that because it gets technical, right? They're like, well, why should you value human well-being? <laughs> and so that one's a little hard, isn't it? Because you have to dig into things like we, we've evolved to be social creatures. And agreed. Yeah. If we if we didn't place human thriving first, well, we just wouldn't be. We just wouldn't be. Well, that and that's the right. thing is that like is that if you if you don't value human well being, if you're a, a member of a species that doesn't value its own existence, then you won't exist. And so, right. so the fact that we're here, you know, it, there may have been human beings that didn't value their own existence. We don't know. We can't talk to them because they're not around anymore. Yeah. Right. And so. <laughs> And so, and I know some people bring up evolution like, well, you know, what is the evolutionary benefit to altruism and morality? You know, like one person sacrificing themselves for another, that doesn't seem like it would have an evolutionary benefit. And yet we hold that behavior in high regard. And, And to that, I say, well, the only reason that that thought is making sense to you is because you're ignoring the fact that we're such social creatures. And that's fundamental to to our our existence and our survival in our society that we don't live in isolation. We, for a long time, we lived in tribes that were you know smaller than 150 people, and we evolved in that setting. Right, and not every act of sacrifice or altruism has to be the ultimate sacrifice, right. where we have mm-hmm. given a life or. Uh, given standing in a community or, you know, we, we've saved someone from a wasting disease and now we die from it ourselves. Not really a call to COVID-19, by the way. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just saying that there is, there is an, almost an implied equivocation uh, when you're offered the, but altruism doesn't seem to be an act of survival. The, the, what's being smuggled in there is uh, the idea that altruism must lead to death. And uh, and yeah. that is not that is not the case. Altruism, and it is not necessarily the case that uh, self sacrifice is sacrifice for one individual, right? So, um, mm-hmm. we have a standing army of in the U.S. of 
four or five hundred thousand, you know, military troops, whatever the number is today. Uh, sorry if I'm off. I'm not off by like all that much. But let's say it's four hundred thousand. Well, that's four hundred thousand people who are saying that they're willing to sacrifice themselves for three hundred and thirty million. And so altruism is not a one to one relationship and it's not always a sacrifice unto death. Yeah. And so I, and, uh, I don't really buy it. Yeah. So, and an, another thing is that you actually see sort of uh, prototypical versions of morality in some animals. So um, yeah, sure. there's an example that Jordan Peterson uses of alpha male wolves. And so when two male wolves in a pack, when they are having a dispute over their dominance, they fight, they wrestle, they bite at each other. And then whoever, you know, realizes they're losing will typically roll over and show their neck. And, and allow, you know, give the more dominant wolf a chance to rip its throat out. And the more dominant wolf does not do that because uh, it's acting on the instinct that, hey, I, I should probably not uh, rip this, you know, this weaker wolf's throat out. Now, you could imagine that maybe it's thinking, oh, I might need this wolf later on. I might need him to help. And if I can just get him to submit to me, maybe that's better than just killing him. But I don't think we believe that the wolf is like rationally articulating that, but it's just acting that behavior out. And, and so it, it has behavior that it's just instinctively programmed with that evolved over time because it had an evolutionary benefit and it's acting out a type of morality without articulating why. And, and so you could imagine as, as human beings evolved that we may have acted out similar things. We didn't know why we were doing it, but it had a benefit. And so that instinct or that behavior stuck. And then over time, as we became more conscious, we began to ask questions like, well, wh why do we act the way we do? And we began telling stories. And that's why you get hero myths. And that's why people started to tell stories about like, well, if we really value someone who's going to protect our tribe or whatever, what's the ultimate version of that? Well, maybe you know, I know, I know you mentioned that, you know, it's not always self-sacrifice, but say that's like the ultimate version of that. And, you know, someone is laying their life down for the tribe and, and then they start telling stories about that. And then they imagine what the ultimate version of that might be. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon you have the beginnings of the of a belief in God. And so all of these things and proto-morality and morality and, you know, belief in God, that they all are connected in, in my view. So did you ever have that bizarre situation where you went to sleep at night and you were worried about how your morality would be shaped the next morning when you woke up? <laughs> no. How you'd be able to control yourself to behave? No. And that's the thing. I've heard some, I mean, like, I'm sure you've heard this too. Like, I've heard some Christians say, well, if I didn't believe in God, I would just be out there murdering people and stealing. And I'm like, you, but you wouldn't, though. You, no. that's that's nonsense but if you it, are that rare person stay in church please yeah <laughs> yes. yeah well i just I, I in studying these things i just believe really firmly that that when it comes to morality we have these moral intuitions that are a combination of genetics and culture yeah. and we act those things mm -hmm. out way before we're able to articulate why mm -hmm. and then the articulation follows it's like we start to ask we start to try and reason about why we're acting the way we're already acting. I, I'm pretty convinced the behavior precedes the reason, uh, not the other Absolutely. way around. We're, we're doing a, a cack-handed job of retrospective justification. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's called uh, motivated reasoning, I think. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, If you've read this, there's this book called Thinking in Bets by this woman named, uh, I think it's Annie, Ann Downs, Annie Downs or something like that. And she's one of the best poker players in the world. And she wrote this book about about poker, but it has so many implications for psychology and how you how how we think and how we reason and why we think the way we do. And it's it's just brilliant. Now, I'd like to go a little bit more on morality thing, but before we get there, I'd like to change subject. And sure. I've heard you on multiple podcasts telling, talking about your story and having some some really interesting conversations. And I really appreciate you doing what you've done and you've opened yourself up to some really challenging conversations and had some really genuinely interesting uh, conversations. And I really liked one of the conversations you had with Sean McDowell mm-hmm. as well. It, it was a really great conversation. But you're not the only high-profile Christian who's come out and, and publicly uh, renounced their faith or wh- whatever phrase people want to use as a preference there. Sure. But you, you're the only one who's really put your, yourself out there. And most of the others have kept very, very quiet and gone low profile. And I know whose name I won't say of one individual specifically who uh, was um, ended up at a meetup with, a face, with people in a Facebook group that I'm part of. And I saw the photo of them meeting up together. And it was really good to see him with a group of people and, and talking through things. But I do know this individual specifically was told, keep a low profile, don't put yourself uh, out there for your own mental health and your, your own sanity. So I guess I've got two questions here. Sure. Do you understand why people who have done that are keeping low profile and staying out of the public eye? And why have you done it differently? Yeah, that's a good question. I agree with you. Most people that have gone through this process have decided to keep a low profile. In fact, I know a lot of people who who have sort of walked away from their faith, you know, privately and not said anything public at all. Um, So there's a number of people that are in Christian culture that don't believe some of whom have have told me privately that they don't believe and they're still active in their, you know, Christian roles because that's the career that they've built and they would be incurring a, just a huge cost uh, as far as their personal lives to to be upfront about what they're thinking. I think it's the I think it's the cost that keeps people from putting themselves out there this way. When all of your social circles and all of your income and all of your or when your whole life is wrapped up in Christianity, there's tremendous motivation not to rock the boat. And what I'm doing is definitely rocking the boat. Um, and I, I've thought a lot about why I'm doing this. And I, I have periods of time where I sort of go off social media. I, I haven't really been on Instagram as much uh, the last couple of weeks because typically as I'm thinking through these things, if I come across a subject where I'm not exactly sure what I think, it, ca- it gives me pause. And so I, I get quiet for a week or two and I work it, I work it through. And then once I feel like I've got that sort of sorted out, then I, I start talking again. But what keeps me going is just the fact that I speak to so many people all the time who are in the same place as me, who are doubting, who are questioning, and they feel like they don't have anyone to talk to about it. They don't feel like they can be honest because they feel like they're going to incur a tremendous amount of personal cost. Uh, whether that's relationships or finances or their, you know, the so- social, you know, circles or, or 
career or whatever. And there's so many people that want to talk about this stuff, but it's scary to take that leap if you're ensconced in Christianity. And so I feel motivated by those people because I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten, you know, direct messages on Instagram or Twitter or emails of, of people that have, have said that what they've heard me talk about has caused them to feel encouraged and, and hopeful that they can walk this thing out without being afraid anymore, that they're not the only one uh, who, who has questions and doubts, that they're not crazy. And to see people sort of feel empowered by me telling my story or my sharing my thoughts, like that's a huge motivator for me. You know, I spent 15 or 16 years in, in Christian music, and what motivated me during that time is I loved seeing people's lives transformed in positive ways. And I still love that. And so for me, if I can do work that allows people to experience new levels of freedom, where they don't feel weighed down by some dogmatic religion that is keeping them from living the life that they want to live and especially if it's an identity thing, like for people that are gay or bi or trans. Um, I, I have a, a dear friend, you know, who, who privately came out to me after I shared this stuff because they knew that I would be a safe place. And it's so telling that like when this person thought I was a Christian, they weren't comfortable telling me the deepest truth about themselves. But as soon as I came out and said, I'm not a Christian anymore, they were like, oh, now I feel like I can share this. And that was just wow. powerful for me. So, um, yeah. and, and, you know, this is, you know, this year I, I've been openly affirming the LGBTQ community and that's been a source of a lot of joy for me that I, I feel like I can have the freedom to do that and be like, no, like I actually, I want this community to have all the rights that I have. I, I, I want their position in, in the world to be normalized and not discriminated against and and participating in the, the process of that community becoming more established in our culture in a way that's normalized and accepted and appreciated and loved. Like, what a joy that is. And that's not something I felt like I was free to do when I, uh, when I was, you know, a part of Christian culture. So all of that are, are factors for me. And um, I'm sorry if I went on kind of long there, but uh, but that's the sort of reason this stuff feels positive and hopeful for me bless you john that wasn't the answer i was expecting but i'm so glad you said it <laughs> <laughs> but touching on some of the people that you mentioned there obviously we're not going to ask for names sure <laughs> but um i think what we should do is at least acknowledge that for people who don't feel that they've got the freedom to be honest about their own questions and, and doubts or even maybe now lack of belief it must be a terrible pressure on them if they're in a, a role of ministry where, yes. as you said, their their income, their livelihood relies on it. But they're now demanded to support and promote actively something that they can no longer accept or maybe can't even believe anymore. There, there must be a terrible emotional pressure on those people. Yeah, there are definitely people who question God and doubt God, but have spent so much time in Christian culture, and maybe they're established in a career that that sort of puts them in a place where they don't have a lot of options. And I can imagine a lot of scenarios, but I actually know of some specifically. And, you know, there's people out there that are pastors and have pastored their whole life, and then come to a place where they're just like, I don't even know if I believe this stuff I'm preaching about. If you've been a pastor your whole life, say 20, 30, 40, 
adult years and you, you know you end up in this place where like this is the only career option i have at this point right gosh i mean like i feel so 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 much empathy for those people mm-hmm. um and 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 truly like if they continue to pastor and if they sort of process this stuff publicly I, I I don't I don't hold them in in disregard. I, I I don't I don't think less of them. They're in a tremendously difficult position. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I would what I would say to those people is like walk that walk this stuff out as best you know how. You know, uh, focus on caring for people, and you know, for a, a time that may mean that you continue to use religious language to do that, but you may find as time goes on that you have an increasing desire to be more transparent. You may find that you have avenues that present themselves to you where you can continue to help people and care about people that have in ways that maybe are less religious. But but for the most part, pastors get into pastoring because they care about people. I'm not one of these atheists that thinks like, oh, like any Christian is an ignorant fool and you know, they're participating in the oppression of society. Like, like most people that get into pastoring do so because they care about people. And yeah. I would just say, you know, if you're starting to doubt this stuff, do your research, read a lot, reach out to people that maybe you feel like would be able to handle your doubts and continue to love people like you've always done and let that become the thing. And I think that's a that's a path forward. Absolutely, uh, the whole the whole concept of secular grace and uh, being great to other people is is something that I think we should all embrace. And I love it, that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it, this exists in the atheist community. Not not every atheist is uh, the loudmouth, shouty atheist. <laughs> Although I have been that kind of atheist at times. I, I do sometimes be like that. There are there are times when I lose patience, and yeah. there was. There was a long period of time where to suggest that I never truly believed was instant rage for me. Oh, I, yeah. I knew of no other way to respond <laughs> to that comment. So, well, there's on both sides of this belief and unbelief thing. There are some individuals which are who are just arrogant and mean spirited uh, on, on both sides of the conversation. And and on both sides, there's also people that are thoughtful and loving and 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 really genuine. I would just say for everyone out there, like regardless of your 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 place uh, on that spectrum of belief or unbelief, may, maybe reach out to some people that believe things differently than you do. If you if you know, and find people that think differently than you, but carry that same sense of like you said, grace and and kindness and openness. They're out there. For those that are listening, if, if you're a Christian and you don't feel like you've interacted with a nice, nice atheist, then I present uh, two nice atheists, uh, or I guess three if I include myself. Oh, but, uh, you uh, must include but, yourself, John. But but you know, like uh, reach out to there are there are people that that are non-religious that are really wonderful people. Reach out and get to know some. And if you're someone who's you know not a believer yourself, and if you feel like the only Christians or 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 Muslims or you know or or you know, you know, people that uh, subscribe to Judaism, you know, like if any, you know, if you don't feel like you've ever interacted with kind and loving religious people, then, you know, look a little harder. They're they're certainly there. 
and my life has only gotten richer as I've walked out the journey of seeking out people that are different than me and getting to know them truly with a genuine desire to to understand their perspective. And my life's only gotten better the more I've done that. Yeah, that's really great to hear. I did poll for some Christians on the Unbelievable Facebook uh, group. So I got a couple of questions to, to come to you from there. So let's get those sure. ones done now. So sure. the first question was, do you feel that your faith has broadened and become more robust? Yeah, that's a tricky question because it depends on what you mean by faith, I guess. I mean, I think I actually deconstructed my faith all the way down to the ground. And since then, I've been sort of building something new back up. And I, I sort of continue to believe that, that, um, w that it is better to know the truth than not, I think. <laughs> um, and, uh, and my suspicion is that God is either not real or if he is real, he's so much more mysterious than we give him credit for. And I suspect if he's real, he's also casting a much wider net than we realize. And so what I mean by that is is essentially like I think God is either not there or or is so universal that the specifics of Christianity almost don't even apply. Something like that. Okay. I, I think I, I like that answer. That's an answer that uh, I would endorse. So the cool. other question, the other question I had was, do you feel any responsibility to bring out of the wrong path those you may have influenced to go down it? Mm. I yes and no. I I feel like the only responsibility that I actively like shouldering is pushing people towards asking the questions that are in their hearts. So for someone who is a strong Christian, and you feel like your faith and your community are like a positive thing in your life, and you're walking that out in ways that are healthy and not harmful to the people around you, then like, good for you. I'm not trying to push you away from that. Like, that's awesome. But if you're someone who is doubting and you don't feel like you have the freedom to doubt, if you're someone who's in a Christian community and you don't feel like it's a healthy thing for you, if you're someone who subscribes to a bunch of beliefs that are doing harm to you or the people around you, if I can help give you a push to look at that, then I want to do that. And so I feel responsible insofar as I hope I'm encouraging people to ask harder questions and have harder conversations with the goal of getting to a healthier place in life. And so in that sense, I'm not concerned about the effects that I'm having on people when I talk about these things, because I mean, I've said this before, and I continue to to believe it, that the truth is not afraid of questions. Absolutely. And yeah. um, you can't convince me that it's a bad thing to seek truth. And so whenever I have a Christian sort of coming at me and saying I shouldn't be saying this stuff, I'm just like, all I'm telling people is to seek the truth. And that shouldn't be a threat to God if he's there, because if he's there, then that would be true. Kind of related to that, as well as being on quite a large number of podcasts, you've also become the subject of quite a large number of podcast episodes as well. <laughs> in fact, I've got I one. I try not in the to can. Google myself too much. Yeah, it's it's probably a dangerous thing, but spoiler, I've actually got one in the can which uh, I recorded with uh, Dave, the graceful atheist, where we talked about Christian responses to people who come out. Mm. And so inevitably, your name 
came up and we looked at some of the Christian responses that we've seen to your story. Obviously, it wasn't all just about you. Sure. That's, that's just a, <laughs> let's yeah. just keep your ego in check. <laughs> sure, yeah, no, that I, I'm not but, the center of this particular universe. So, yeah, but there was. No, but a, we did put a tracker on your car. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yep. I, I know there's a tracker on me. It's called my phone because oh, I'm just. Yeah. I'm assuming everything I'm doing is tracked anyways at this point. Oh, no, yeah, it is. Well, if you're going to exactly do a crime, right. dear listeners, leave your phone at home before you go out and do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that one's in the can and that one's going to come out shortly. So the listeners cool. will have listened to that by the time they hear, hear this one. But in the research for that, there, I think it was Braxton Hunter who, who said this. I, I, it, I, I, could be, I could be wrong. I said that I watched multiple YouTube videos talking about people deconstructing. But the phrase that really jumped out at me, and I'm paraphrasing it here, was people like yourself, namely you, John, who are public Christians, who do a public deconstruction and, and come out and then talk about their, their lack of faith, they have more of an impact on Christians than the YouTube atheists. So people like Andrew and myself who just shout about our atheism on, on podcasts. Is that something that you accept is potentially true? I guess. I suspect that that would have a real... I suspect that that would have a shelf life. I think for a period of time, people might be drawn to my story. But eventually, like... Life moves on, you know, and I think like five years from now, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure that the idea that I, I you know, used to believe in God and now I don't, I, I just don't know how significant that'll be for very many people. I think it might have a flash in the pan effect. I guess there's some truth to that in a way. So was, do you feel like he was alluding to me having a responsibility that I was not factoring in or... I don't think so. The way I interpreted the, the comment was as him being a Christian leader, it was a concern for him, for the people that he sure. is uh, responsible for the faith of. Yeah. But, well, I mean, I would, you know, I would say count- to that, like, yeah, like whenever Christians talk about Islam, they love to bring on former Muslims who converted to Christianity. And so, you know, leaving one faith is something that's celebrated as long as it's not your faith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So there's so, something, oh, sorry, I was just going to say there's, there's something a little egotistical about claiming the responsibility for someone else's faith. Agree. There's something uh, slightly, it's not terribly broken, but it's slightly broken. I'm not saying that we don't influence each other, but I think it's worth carefully drawing the line about what influence each of us has over the other when we're talking about adults who are in roughly power equal relationships, right? Mm-hmm. right? So anyway, uh, it was just yeah. a thought. Well, and, just, and sort of my, my, my sort of last thing I'll say on that is that I spent 15 or 16 years publicly talking about my views, my spiritual views, and everyone in Christianity was clearly fine with that. But... Once I felt differently, then I started to have Christians tell me that I shouldn't be talking about it. So the reason that I continue, one of the reasons that I continue or that I wanted to do it publicly in the beginning is that I just felt like if I didn't speak up publicly and if I just kept this to myself, that I would be participating in a culture of shame. 
that mm. I'd be participating in a culture that says it's not okay to doubt, it's not okay to question, and if you don't subscribe to the same views that we do, then you need to sit down and shut up. And I try not to use harsh, sort of aggressive language when I'm talking about this stuff. I think that's abhorrent mm. because it's essentially saying agree or be silent. And that's totalitarianism. Yeah. Like, that's the very thing that, you know, at least in America, like, that's something that politically Christian, you know, conservatives would associate with the far left or something, you know. Um, or stacking and, and, the Supreme Court. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, I just think, I, I think it's important in any community to be open to dissenting voices. And to their credit, there's actually a lot of Christian apologists or theologians or thinkers who have reached out to me and have been very kind. Like Justin Brierley, super, super kind guy and has had me on his show twice. Sean McDowell, who you mentioned earlier, I mean, he and I have actually become good friends through this whole thing. And we we actually go running on the beach. Uh, well, that that... That actually did sound kind of gay. Um, but, uh, no, but we, cool we, way, we, we get together. We go we go for a run every once in a while, like maybe once a month or something like that. And and he's become a real friend. Uh, another Christian apologist named Jonathan McClatchy, who lives out in the uh, on the East Coast. He, we, he, we've had he, Jonathan on for a couple of episodes. Oh, right on. He's become someone who I've corresponded with a ton because um, he's willing to challenge me quite a bit. And I found that actually useful because if I have a position on something, I could bring it up to Jonathan and I know he'll offer me the strongest opposing position I could hope for. <laughs> right. right. And, and so it's been helpful for me to sort of contend with him uh, in a friendly but firm way to be able to be sure that what I'm thinking isn't just the result of some sort of ex-Christian echo chamber, you know. Um, right. So I think all of that has been helpful. Yeah, I do like Jonathan and the way that he is more than willing to go out there and engage with uh, yep. with, with people that who are very different to, to him. We had him on and we had a had a good chat, and then I issued a challenge. Well, it wasn't necessarily a challenge, but then we had him back again with uh, another friend of the show, Brian Blaze, who's very much a sort of a scientific mind, and let the two of them go at it. And that was. Oh, I uh, bet that was interesting. It was. It was very interesting, and it was a case of I introduced them and then <laughs> stood back and almost turned my yeah. mic off and <laughs> let the two of them have their conversation. Yeah, Brian. His background is a PhD with an emphasis in neuroscience. And oh. Jonathan. Yeah. Well, in Jonathan's background, uh, if I recall correctly, Jonathan, if you're listening, and I don't get this exactly right, my apologies. But I think his background is a PhD in biology. Yeah, it's molecular biology specifically. Molecular. Yeah. Bi oh, thank yeah. you. Thank mm -hmm. you. Okay. So, and that was a good episode. It really was. And I think that some correspondence has continued after that, even between the two of them. Oh, that's so. awesome. Yeah. He, yeah. One, one of the things I respect about Jonathan is he actually puts himself out there for, for people who are believers that are struggling with doubts. And he spends time on like one-on-one -on -one Zoom calls with mm -hmm. some of these people. And like, it's one thing to do that publicly where there could be a public thing where somehow he's getting notoriety from doing it. But he does it privately and quietly. And he's spending time with people one-on-one -on -one legitimately because he cares and wants to offer them the best. Like the way he describes it to me is he says, if people are going to leave Christianity, I, I want them to know 
you know, to experience all the best arguments for Christianity before walking away. And I think that's right. Too. And, I mean, and I, and I'm like, I don't know. I respect that a lot. Sure. And so uh, he's been working on me for months. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I, I get the sense from Jonathan that he's not likely to give up easy. So. No. <laughs> no, our first YouTube conversation with him and I was two hours of him hitting me with things that I was not prepared to contend with. And, and, and not, I mean, not in an unfriendly way at all, but right. I was just like, wow, you know a lot more than me about this stuff. And, you know, we continue to have that type of back and forth where he's, he's very knowledgeable. His memory is incredible. Um, it is, yeah. Uh, very academic, isn't he? Very academic. Yeah. So I I appreciate having uh, someone like him to contend with because I feel like it allows me to refine my thinking on things. If you'll permit me asking a personal question, John, sure. did your yeah. family follow you on your journey out of faith? Uh, well, my wife and I have very similar views. We're both pastor's kids. We both come from really, really similar backgrounds. And so we're on that journey together, thankfully. And I've spoken with people who are in a, a situation where that's not the case for them, where they are wrestling with doubts and questions and their spouse uh, is not. And that's very challenging. I'm really grateful that's not the position I'm in. Uh, and I really I have a lot of empathy for people who are in that position. For us, my wife and I are very much on the same page. My kids are, are three years old and two years old. So they're they're not quite at that place yet. But the way that they're playing into it is we are always asking ourselves the question of how are we raising our kids? What are we teaching them? You know, like, what are we going to tell them as they get older? All of their cousins and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents are Christian. And, uh, you know, at some point there's going to be a difference that, that becomes yeah. obvious. In, and in they're going to ask you that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, because I kept it all secret to myself, I eventually got the question from my daughter, Daddy, why aren't you coming to church anymore? Mm. and what did you I knew say? it was coming I, I had to be honest there, there was no there is no let out when your child asks you a question like that the only yeah. option is to be honest you, yep. you do you, you gain absolutely nothing by, by lying to your child in a situation like that so I just said honey I, I'm, I'm unable to, to believe anymore and it, it mm. was as simple as that I thought more would come from that but it, it was left at that how and, old was she when you had that conversation? I'm trying to think now. Um, she's 16 now, 12, 10, 11, 12, that sort of age. Yeah. Um, and she knows what I do now. Then. Yeah, she knows what I do now, and she's uh, okay with what I do now. And we don't have in-depth conversations about it. She, yeah. she knows knows what I think, and if she wants to have that conversation, she'll choose to have that conversation again i gain nothing by trying to force conversation yeah well but, i've got a um i'm in the place you are john i've got a 15 month old so she's a little younger than your youngest but mm -hmm. in our extended family that that lives here around us we've got four pentecostal preachers in our oh, wow. in our yeah yeah and it's the kind of thing that i'm sure you're familiar with uh, at the family gatherings everybody gets together and holds hands and says prayers and that and that sort of thing and uh and uh, you know the talk is very often religious because uh, they're all true believers yeah uh, not not used as an epithet right not not used in any diminutive way but right. these are people who really believe the things they believe and we are in a place that because their belief is so strong, because they are so convinced about not only the their own need to be righteous, 
but about their call to preach that to others and, and to try to convert and to try to, uh, I, I don't think indoctrination, in fact, here is, here's my little girl now. Yeah. Um, it, she, um, you know, we have to be careful about allowing them to do the things that will ultimately indoctrinate her into Christianity. And uh, it is not an easy path. Yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, my my plan is this, and this is actually a universal enough thought that maybe maybe this is a good place for us to leave it, uh, this conversation. My thought on it is that as my kids get older, I'm gonna spend time one on one with both of them, and uh, and at some point this stuff will come up. We'll talk about the fact that life is mysterious, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what exists outside the boundaries of our senses. And there's a lot of people out there that say that they do know. And my suspicion is that we don't know. If I can encourage my kids to have a wonder about the world around us, whether it's, you know, the natural world or or supernatural or whatever, then I want to encourage them to have a sense of wonder and to be comfortable with the reality that there might be questions to which we don't have answers. And if I can do that, then hopefully that'll set them up to be able to make decisions on their own without me giving them a specific sort of belief set, but just a general approach. How to think and not what to think. Yeah, how to think and not what to think. That's brilliant. Yeah. So was it unsettling, John, because you were, you said earlier, the same as myself. Was it that transition from absolute certainty of how the world was to acceptance of a significant quantity of uncertainty was that an unsettling step to take or did you embrace it yes uh yeah that was certainly unsettling i definitely felt like i went from having this sense of certainty about life and about the fact that there was a god that was providing for me um to uh, a sense that I, i did not have any certainty about that and life felt a lot more dangerous after that a lot scarier. Yeah, it definitely was hard to lose that certainty, but I also felt like I was gaining a level of honesty with myself that I didn't have before. And that that felt worth it. I think if you ask people, do you value truth? They will tend to say yes. And I think that I would rather live in a knowledge of the truth than a comfortable illusion. And I think most people would agree with that, even if the comfortable illusion is quite comfortable. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we've talked around harm and caring for other people. So, in in your newfound worldview and what you're working through, how does that extend to non-human animals? Oh yeah. Um. So this is an interesting thing. I I actually I follow this YouTuber uh, named Cosmic Skeptic. His name well, his real name's Alex O'Connor, and he's actually in the UK. And he went vegan a while back and has been studying animal ethics. And I know Peter Singer is, is, a, is an influence of his, and he's someone that has written about animal ethics in a, a book called Animal Liberation and I think a few other places. It's a really interesting aspect of morality because as a Christian, I always saw this very hard dividing line between humans and animals. And, you know, human beings are made in the image of God. And animals are basically here to serve us, I guess, and for us to use how we see fit, more or less. But once you step away from a Christian worldview and recognize that there's not such a hard dividing line between animals and humans, and in fact, when you look at genetics, like we are 97% identical with chimpanzees, and 
I think we're something like 60% genetically identical to like, was, I can't remember what that, I need to find a better stat for this, but it's like, it was something ridiculous. It was like a, like ants or something. It was like some non-mammalian thing. It's like, we have so much in common with the animal kingdom. We are a part of the animal kingdom. We are, we're just essentially the most evolved. I don't even know if that is a correct way to say it, but we are, uh, we are evolved animals. And when you realize that and you go, well, I value, I value human beings. I don't want to do anything that causes them unnecessary suffering. And you start to ask the question, well, like, why would I only value human beings? Why wouldn't I also extend at least some of that thought to other animals? And are there ways in which I can live my life that cause less suffering to animals? And when you look at the way that we manufacture food in the modern world, we treat animals horribly. And for a lot, you know, most people don't want to see that stuff. They'll actively avoid learning about it. I certainly did. I was like, I don't want to see that stuff. You know, I like a good burger. But uh, it's caused me to to rethink that. Um, and Alex O'Connor, uh, you know, that I, like the guy I mentioned earlier, he he put this video up on YouTube recently that was called cognitive something about cognitive dissonance. It was basically pointing out the fact that people will decry situations where like a dog gets kicked, but they're totally comfortable with the treatment of animals in the meat processing industry, for instance. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a case of cognitive dissonance where you're really like holding two contradictory views at the same time. I felt challenged by that. I think going all out vegan would be very difficult for me. So I'm experimenting with uh, going vegetarian first. I've been doing it now for almost a week. And it really hasn't been that difficult to change. There's so many products out there that make it easier than it used to be. Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are two examples of companies that are making plant-based meat substitutes that are actually delicious. So I'm starting there and I'm starting by not eating meat uh, with the goal of inching my way towards veganism, hopefully at some point, because it, it seems like if I want to have a coherent way of living in the world where I truly want to minimize the amount of suffering that I cause other conscious creatures, then I, I feel like I should try to extend that to animals as much as I can. Thank you. That's a great conversation to have, I think. And Alex, I, I admire Alex. We had him on our sister podcast, Proscenium, back in January this year, having a conversation about veganism. Oh, cool. And the question I'd like to ask you is, could you imagine yourself coming to this position while you were still a Christian? Uh... I don't feel like the incentive would be there because there's this hard dividing line between human beings and animals. At least that's how I saw it. And it was sort of like, oh, well, if an animal is suffering, I mean, like, obviously we don't want to cause unnecessary suffering, but like, like a very common response, if you bring up this, this, you know, arguments for veganism, a very common response might be, well, like, look at the animal kingdom. Like when a lion kills an antelope, like it's pretty... There's some suffering going on there, right? So it's like, it's natural. It's part of the natural world. And I would say to that, yeah, that's that's true. But that's not what's happening in our modern sort of meat, meat industry. Like, we are systemically causing suffering. And yes. like a lion killing an antelope, like if a lion doesn't eat meat, like they're not genetically and, and, and uh, biologically able to eat plants as far as I know. And so, like, they'll literally die if they don't kill the occasional antelope. But we have the option of not doing that. And so, 
in the society that we live today with the bodies that we have, we have the ability to live without eating meat. We have the ability to live without consuming animal products of any kind, in fact. And so if that's an option that's available to us, then maybe that's something we should consider. And I think that's a personal choice, but it's one that I feel compelled to explore. Yeah. And kudos to you for doing it. And the reason why I asked that question, as you know, is because I saw you commented to Alex on Twitter and because of the interaction that we had with Alex, I follow him on Twitter as well. Oh, cool. And um, as little as a year ago, I was not only a, a confirmed meat eater, if I went out to a restaurant and saw a vegan symbol next to a meal, I would not choose that meal out of a matter of principle. <laughs> so that's the kind of person I was. And I said to myself, I could accept it for reasons of diet and for personal health, but I couldn't accept it for the morality reason, for the animal gotcha. reasons. And Alex came on and I said, and I opened up with, you know, why should I be vegan? And he came straight out with the treatment of animals. And I'm, and within 10 seconds, I realized that my thing of, I couldn't be sold on this for the treatment of animals just wasn't going to wash. And uh, Alex did, he, he if you even go and listen to the episode, he really hit us hard with it and he just stopped, wouldn't stop punching. And it was a fabulous conversation that we had with him. And after we had the conversation, I said to my wife, you need to listen to this episode. If you don't listen to my podcast yeah. at all, you need yeah. to listen to this one. And she did. And we had the conversation with it as a family. And we agreed from that moment onwards, we would not buy meats and we would actively seek to avoid buying any animal products at all, full stop. And so we finished all the animal products that we had in the house and we've not bought any animal products wow. for food consumption since then. And that includes dairy. We've gone full on vegan. Yeah, dairy is the hardest one, I, I it think. Is. Um, it, it, it is difficult. There are alternatives, but I love my cheese. And yeah, cheese, cheese, is, cheese is the that's the one for me too, man. It's like, oh, it, it is my problem. I'm not missing the meat. I'm genuinely not missing the meat. But there are so uh, many gorgeous, gorgeous blue cheeses. And I genuinely miss it. Yeah. But, you know, this is the commitment that we've decided to make. And that's the price I need to pay for this commitment. It's not like there aren't other really nice foods to eat because there are plenty yeah. of really nice foods to eat. So it's not like I'm missing something I really like for something that's horrible. I'm missing something I really like for something else that I now really like. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a <laughs> lot know. of options out there that didn't used to exist. So, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've also contemplated and I need to do more research on this, but you know, I think there are there are potentially, I mean, again, you know, if Alex were on this conversation, he might disagree with me on this. I am interested in investigating whether there are ways that you could buy certain types of, say, like uh, cheese, if it was from like a farm where there, you know, like there was things done in a very sort of naturalistic way i'm sure if i dig deeper into that there's probably problems um we but... we did we did exactly that search and uh, did you? Or rather my wife did that search and she and what did you find she said it's marginally better but there's still problems you're better off avoiding it completely yeah that i i kind of thought that that's where that might yeah. lead <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's because of the the what the dairies have to do in order to keep their cows producing milk that's right. the main problem area right. yeah yeah uh, so we we did try but it's it's not easy yeah well so thank you for that john so we've got just the one question now unless andrew sure. wants to jump on quickly with a question but the final question uh, for all our guests and you have 
been a genuinely wonderful guest and I could easily carry this on for another hour. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Thank you. Do you have a favorite Bible character? Would you like to share them and who are they? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I think my my favorite Bible character is actually Jacob. Um, because I love Jacob and Esau. Uh, well, yeah, and, and specifically the, the story of Jacob wrestling the angel. Okay, yes. Um, because for me, that is such a beautiful metaphor of what it's like to grapple with the idea of the divine. I feel like there's something about life that feels that way, like you're contending with something that's bigger than you and you don't entirely know what it is. And it leaves you sort of wounded. And that just feels true in life. There's this sort of underlying like deep sadness that I've felt my whole life, that it's always sort of there and I can call it up whenever I want to. When I'm happy, I still sense it. And when I'm sad, I sense it a lot. There just seems to be this fundamental thing in life that feels like something like a wound. And I don't know what that is, but I think we all have it. And at the same time, I notice that I actually think life can be quite beautiful. And so life is also a blessing. And I know that's religious terminology to say blessing, but it feels like the only word that fits to me. And so I love the story of Jacob wrestling the angel because he wrestled with the divine. He didn't know what he was getting into. And he came away with both a blessing and a limp. And that just, that, I mean, I, I'm content thinking of that as a complete, completely metaphorical story, but it feels like it rings true when I think about life and what life feels like and the experience of being alive. And that's kind of why that's my favorite character, my favorite Bible story. That may be our best answer so far, Matthew. <laughs> you say that every time, you. <laughs> but, okay, okay, but look, every guy listening to this podcast has only had one question the whole time, right? They, they all want to know the same thing, and they're wondering why it, ha why it hasn't been asked, because the vast majority of guys listening to this podcast have picked up a guitar at some point, and, uh, you know, or played air guitar in the mirror or whatever, right? And they just want to know one thing, John. They've been waiting for this question. Sure. <laughs> Are Christian groupies better than non-Christian groupies? That's <laughs> all they want to know. <laughs> well, you, you can feel totally free not to. <laughs> so I, I, here's how I'll answer that. I think that I, I don't think that anyone gets into uh, Christian music for the groupies. And if uh, and I think that if they did, they would be disappointed. And <laughs> And uh, you can interpret that answer however you want, but uh, it, probably any way that you interpret it is somewhat accurate. So we are we are actually not a vicarious, salacious podcast. And, <laughs> and, and I, will, I will let it. Uh, I will let that lie. Yeah, but, John, well, yeah. The, the fuller discussion on that is behind our paywall. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> pay no attention to the cover art on the paywall. Pay, pay right. Um, John, it has been a, a genuine pleasure. Yeah, really, well, thank really you so nice. much for having me, guys. It was a great conversation. Really appreciate yes. the opportunity. Uh, yeah. Thank you, John. I really, really did enjoy this. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It's been great. I'm looking forward to hearing you on other podcasts. I know of at least one other that you've been in contact with. So I'm yep. looking mm -hmm. forward to that. So keep doing what you're doing, John. I really admire you, really admire what it is you're doing. I've loved the answers to your questions. 
thank you once again. I've really enjoyed these last oh, two thank hours. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. You're All right, welcome. Then. Uh, if, by the way, folks, if you're listening and you'd like to get in touch, uh, John, how can our listeners reach out to you? Yeah, um, probably the best place is Instagram. I'm just John Steingard on Instagram. And uh, I'm on, actually, sort of recently, I'm on Twitter a lot, too, because in the last few months dealing with this transition in my life, Twitter has become a, a really fun place to hash out some of these ideas. And so Instagram or Twitter are, are sort of the two places that I spend the most time. Um, and are there any projects? You mentioned the documentary in Uganda. Are there mm -hmm. any other things that we can link to in the show notes? Well, uh, not not yeah. not so much right now. I know normally if you have a guest, like a lot of times they'll have like a book to promote or something like that. I am working on some stuff. I've very much been in the thick of like whatever story I end up telling. I've very much been living it the last right. few months. I've been a little bit slow to sort of like try and capitalize that on that by like making any a product or anything like that. Um, gotcha. Although I have been gathering my thoughts in written form just to sort of to know where I'm at with things. And so that is shaping up to be something that could potentially be a book at some point. But at the moment, no. <laughs> at the moment, uh, but the documentary I did in Uganda is called Batwa, B-A-T-W-A. And it's on my YouTube channel. It wasn't actually anywhere publicly for the longest time. And it, it wasn't until I started talking about the Batwa in the context of, of my story here that I realized I should probably put it on YouTube. So, so it hasn't been viewed that many times on YouTube because it hasn't been there for very long. So... Um, uh, we will link it, to it, though. We'll find, yeah, but, and, we'll find and, it and Instagram we'll and Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, anyone yeah. that's interested in watching that, it, yeah, it's just uh, it's just called Batwa. That's the documentary. Well, we will make sure and put everything that we can into the show notes. And cool, listeners, if you uh, if you would like to get in touch about this show or any past show, if you'd like to agree or disagree, as always, you can hit us up at ReasonPress at gmail.com. You have been listening to a podcast by Reason Press. To get in touch, email reasonpress at gmail.com or see our website, reasonpress.net, where you'll also find our book, Still Unbelievable. We welcome more feedback and you might even end up on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. You can hear more of her music at soundcloud.com slash hollybishop. You can support us by buying some of Holly's music and telling her we sent you.